Well, as promised, and as always, David Shapiro is first up. You've been traveling around the world, Dave? I have. I was in Australia <laughs> over December. Um, Those bushfires. Inter- yeah. yeah, yeah. Alec, it was, uh, it's quite tragic to see what's happening there, and uh, it's becoming a political battle. No one's quite sure what's caused them. Um, there's a lot of debate. Um, I'm not going to get in. My, I'm not going to get in between it. But I think all that I can conclude is that uh, things are not going to be the same, and uh, I think people are going to be a lot more careful about the environment, the way they act, the way they, you know, conduct their lives, and hopefully a lot more precaution. Because I think the tragedy is 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 the um, the area that has been destroyed, and I think the thing that gets to us, you know, besides homes, and there have been personal lives firefighters, volunteers, is the huge amount of animal life that has gone. I think a third of the population of koala bears, you know, burned, suffoca- suffocated and so on. So it's, it's, it's a tragedy of monumental proportions. It is indeed. On to uh, issues closer to home. Uh, well, I suppose not so close to home because NASPERS's subsidiary process yeah. has been added mm. in the UK trying to buy Just Eat. They went in at mm. around 700p a share, pushed it up to 800p a share, but they've admitted defeat. Now, David, is this a good thing? It, it, it tends to, <laughs> the performance of the share price t- <laughs> tends to say that just as well they lost. <laughs> That's terrible. I think he got a bit of a beating, and and for a bit I felt I felt like defeated. You know, uh, when you see that his his whole strategy backfired onto him. Uh, take a lot, or just eats was um, you know taken out by take a lot. What's it take? Not take a lot. Uh, take away. But there are plenty of other opportunities. I think in that area. Alec, the one thing is that if you're going to go into an area, I think you've got to be dominant. And, uh, you know, it's got to be uh, something of large proportion and something that's going to make a difference to process. But the market seems to have reacted uh, almost celebratory and uh, pushing the share price up and saying, well, we missed that one. But I think in the press, it's come off uh, or in the media, in the international media, it's come off um, as having been comprehensively beaten. And um, I, d- I don't know how that's going to affect his ego in any any way. But I mean, as a shareholder, I don't. You know, we 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 take these things in our stride. This is going to happen. You're going to go for some companies. You're going to miss a few as long as you don't overpay and become silly and allow your ego to take over in terms of what you're going to pay. But um, there's still plenty of opportunity in the IT space for uh, Van Dyke to you know to look at. So this is this is by no means over. Yeah, Bob Van Dyke, mm. the chief executive of Process, mm. and uh, he used to be the chief executive of Naspers as well, making this run at a UK company called Just Eat. It was all over the headlines internationally here in South mm. Africa. It didn't get quite as much coverage, but I suppose that's to be expected. Uh, we don't buy our uh, our takeaways at, at, in the evening from Just Eat, but it's a huge company, David. It would have been a, a very, very good deal for... Nice pass at the right price. Sorry for process. Now we must call process, it at yeah. the right price. But it you know, I remember when Marcus Yuster was on his takeover spree. I know it's a it's a bit of a swear word in South Africa now, and for pretty good reason when you talk about Marcus Yuster. But the market liked the fact when he walked away or mm. seemed to walk away from a couple of deals. Argos mm. was one of them, for instance. So isn't this? Mm. Just, just a reflection that the market sometimes doesn't like the uncertainty of big acquisitions. I think so, and I think, I think particularly this was a hostile battle. 
or uh, I think Bob von Dyke was making it a, into a hostile battle. Um, so I think there, that, that just unsettled shareholders. And remember, you're not only talking to local shareholders, you know, where he might be a hero or where Naspers might be a, a hero company. I think this is in the international scene where you've got a lot more choices to make. So I think people there are a lot more discerning about uh, valuations. So I think from that point of view, um, they, they feel comfortable um, in his strategy. But Alec, you know, there's plenty of opportunity. There's plenty of time for him. He doesn't have to rush things. Uh, he can wait for the right, um, you know, for, for, for the right company to come up. And I think, um, there's India, you know, there's India, there's Brazil, there's so many other areas in which he can, uh, participate. It's a, Big market. And I think all you have to do is to go into a big city today and to see the number of people riding around on bikes, uh, either, either, you know, push what, what we, what we call pedal bikes buzz or bikes. alternatively buzz bikes, buzz bikes mm. yeah, buzz bikes or even, uh, literally pedal bikes, um, you know, delivering food. So I think it's, uh, it's still a massive area. And, uh, he's, he's, he's identified it as the area that he wants to get into. Yeah, well, they're in it, and they just want to get. They want to be world dominant, and don't we mm. all? Mm. David, somebody who is world dominant, uh, who's actually got embroiled in quite a scrap here in South Africa, is a guy called Rodney Sachs. Uh, yes, the, uh, you know Rodney at all? Sure, sure. Greenside Boys. Oh my word! <laughs> Victory Park Boys. Now tell us a story. <laughs> tell us the story of Rodney Sachs, the Greenside Boys. <laughs> I, I, well, I don't. I, I don't know what, I know that is, I know this is monster, the drink. Yes. But, uh, Rodney was with, uh, Les, I knew his brother Les better, uh, who owned an art gallery here called Les Art, which was in Rosebank. But the Sax boys came from, uh, Victor, they went to King David in Victory Park. Rodney was at either Edward Nathan or Worksman. I forget. You know, was he Worksman? He was Worksman. He was a litigant. He was known as a hard ass litigant lawyer. You know, if ever you had a tough case, you called Rodney in. So that was his reputation. And that's not necessarily bad. I think there are a couple of chaps around like that at the moment. You know, um, you know it happens in, in life. You get these cases. But, I, you know, he was, I think, respected. I'm not saying not respected, but he was a, a litigant lawyer. And I know he went to L.A. Um, and his brother's still there, Les. I think Les has still got an art gallery in there. They're in Jovic, yeah. And I, mm. uh, yeah, and I know that they made a lot of money out of Monster, which is the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, what, what do you call it? Energy, these? energy drinks. drinks. Mm. Energy drinks. So, so that's Rodney, yeah. But that's, uh, I, I can't contribute more than that, knowing that, uh, I just remember them as younger, pe- you know, as younger people. Well, let me tell mm. you a, a little story mm. on, on Rodney Sachs as well. So mm. he goes to, he was, by the way, the youngest ever partner at Worksman's. Mm. Uh, he, he was yeah. there for 20 years. Then he goes to the U.S. and together with Hilton Schlossberg, I don't know if you remember Hilton. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can tell us a bit about him in a moment. They, they buy a small beverage company for $12.5 million. They've turned it now into a huge company called Monster, which is 30 billion U.S. dollars market cap. And it has been the best performer in the mm. world of all shares mm. you could have bought on the 1st of January mm. 2000. So mm. for, the, for the current decade, for the current uh, century, 
uh, in 20 years in. It's the best performer. The numbers are quite staggering. If you put $100 into Monster on the 1st of January 20, 2000, it would today be worth $65,000. Yeah. So these Greenside boys are, are, are pretty nifty, David. <laughs> yeah, well, Joffy came from Greenside, but these <laughs> Joffy was from Greenside. I'm trying to think who else came from uh, Greenside. But uh, um, look, it is. It's a, it's a phenomenal story. I don't know much. I've just seen Monster. It's one of these real... Uh, you got to really be down to go and have one of these drinks, you know. It's, uh, like a Red Bull. Uh, you like prefer Red Bull? Bull yeah. <laughs> no, I'm a Red Bull. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I can't remember Hilton that well. Hilton no, Schlossberg. Hilton Schlossberg. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Even in my career, I do recall him. Uh, in, 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 he was quite a, a mover and shaker. And well, yeah. he went over there. He became the chief. He's the chief operating officer. And mm. I think I think the one's the chairman, and the other one's the president. Yeah. They have yeah. titles in America. But the reason why Rodney Sachs is back in the news is because he has a, been a long-time director of Comair. And Comair oh. is having, having an extraordinary time. He resigned off the board. Uh, Van der Hoofen, the chairman, resigned off the board. Lindsay Ralph from Vidvest seems to be making a um, – well, shaking up the place. And it, it all relates – it all goes back to – uh, some pretty poor governance that went on with a, an acquisition that they did of a company called Metico, which we'll be talking to yeah. Barbara Walsh of Metico in a little while. But, David, have you been following Comair? Or do you remember, maybe maybe we go back a bit, when Joffy, Brian Joffy first brought mm, in for mm, Midwest years ago, yes, there was a bit yes. of a punch-up in the boardroom and then things quietened yes. down and I think Joffy then left uh, not long I, after that. Mm, remember Gidon Novik. Um, That's right. Resigned as well. I think he had a bit of a, I don't know what he wanted to do. I think the backdrop to that was that, um, because Joffy, I, I think, wanted to impose, uh, certain, what, what the word be, and I, I might be talking out of turn, but I think, um, Hilt, uh, sorry, Gidon probably felt that they weren't acting in the best interest of the company. They weren't, um, uh, what's the word is that some of the deals were, uh, they had interest in, you know, in other words, conflicts. seeing deals done. Mm. Conflicts, yeah, that's, I was trying to think of the, yeah, there were conflicts of interest in it, and I think that's why Gidon resigned. He wanted to be open-minded when they did deals. I think because wasn't Joffy involved, you know, he was involved in the airport's company, and I yes. think this is where the conflict might have been. But I don't know it well enough to, to really comment, but I think that was the backdrop to that. But it's and Brian messy what, Comair, very mm, messy it was messy. At the mm. moment. And, and, but now, yeah. with these uh, changes in, in the boards, it's, it's terribly messy. Yeah. What do you do in a case like that, David? Do you? They've got two of those Boeing Maxes on the uh, on, on the uh, runway. Which, which, yeah, and uh, which they can't fly at the moment. Do you stay but in I the share? I don't know. I haven't been in it for a long time. You know, it's been a very small company, and also the reason I didn't get into it is simply because of the uh, petrol price and the and, you know the the swings in costs of running an airline. Um, have been so difficult, although they should be in a very good position now with SAA um, in receivership or um, in business rescue. You know, Comair should be very well placed to actually benefit. And this is a company that I don't think has ever shown a loss at its entire life. It's been yes. uh, you know, superbly run. But, yes. I mean, at this stage, yeah, there are issues. And remember, they've got the issues of trying to claim that money, you know, which has already gone into the share price. 
the billion award, the yeah. billion so, rand so award that was made, which they might never get. What happened you know, there? Was it's, it it's, the, I don't know where they're going to be in with regard to that. Yeah, the, the, the Constit- uh, Competition Commission or Competition mm. Tribunal awarded them a billion rand from mm. South African Airways predatory pricing and, and anti-competitive practices. But now with South African Airways in, mm. uh, well, business rescue, that might not come through. But, David, this mm. share price. Was yeah. uh, comfortably over I've got to look at it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, only only a year ago, uh, it's now sitting at 263. So it's virtually halved in that period. You've got shakeup yeah. in the boardroom. Yeah. They've lost yeah. Rodney Sachs, yeah. Mr. Monster, mm-hmm. the guy who went and created Monster, who stayed on the board. He's resigned, possibly in disgust, <laughs> and saying, "Look, he doesn't want to be involved with this little little peanut company, <laughs> company yeah. you know, relative to his, mm-hmm. if it isn't going to be performing properly." What do you do? It's got a market cap of just over 1.2 billion rand. And look, look, I think the history supports uh, the share price at these levels. I think that's uh, um, they're still an operating company, and I think they're still a profitably uh, profitable operating company. I think that Lindsay comes with a very high reputation. He's not a chap. You know, you can see the effects that he's having on some of the companies that Brian did buy uh, at Cock Ingrams and Comair, you know, when he was still at um, Bidvest. I don't think these fit into the Bidvest stable at the moment, but I think he comes in there having an investment in it and says, you know, as long as I'm invested, I'm going to make sure that it performs. So my money's on Lindsay at the moment, you know, and... Um, I, th- I think that the shake-ups that come will be for the benefit. And I think this is a company that I say has done, has performed very well. I think everything's in its favor at the moment. So maybe this is the time to pick up at 250, 260. Okay, on to MTN. There's a company mm. that's also been under uh, the crush, <laughs> but some good news at last coming from uh, Nigeria. A $2 billion demand from uh, the Attorney General. Now, that's been dropped. So yep. is it time mm. to say, despite their issue now in Iran as well, where they're being accused of supporting the Taliban in American courts, mm. is it time to say at last you should be investing in MTN again? You, you know what you know what I like about uh, MTN and what I like, and this is a theme that's going to dominate for the next decade, is the huge amount of data that consumers are going to use. So they've got that in their favor. Um, Alec, what the challenge is, is how to make that profitable. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that demand for data over the next 10 years is going to go up tenfold globally. The more cell phones that people have, the smarter the cell phones, uh, the more entertainment, music, and everything that we use, the more demand for data point is that you're in the MTN, Vodacom are in that position where they can benefit and I include a lot of global companies. How are you going to make that work for you? So I think they're in the right area for what lies ahead. It's it's whether they can they can make this profitable and whether they can keep their costs and whether they can deliver data. I think they've got government against them at the moment. I think government's got increased spectrum and, and support them. But I mean they are in the right place. These are the right kind of companies that can benefit. So get all this mess out the way. Get your you know get your strategies right. Uh, demand for your product is only going to increase. 
And to close off with, Bondi, the recently, yeah. fairly recently appointed chief executive, Peter Oswald, uh, leaving after three years. He'll be leaving at the end of March. There was no, there's no successor that's, uh, that's been named. What's the thought on that one, David? What, within it, a corporate, we, what happens when somebody leaves under these conditions? We're battling to understand this. You know, he was only there three years. Admittedly, he's a, a veteran of 22 years. We don't know what's behind his resignation. You know what happens sometimes? You come from a, a CFO position, you know, come from a, a you know, number two or three or four in charge, and suddenly you get to the top position. It's not that easy to run it. So I don't know what's pushed him out. You know, we, we never heard any stories. It's a tough industry. Um, you know, costs are increasing. Uh, demand is reducing. Um, demand for your products redu- you know, reducing. So it's not an easy area to be in, but this has been a very good performing company and it's been very well run. But we haven't got to the bottom of what's been behind the uh, resignation. In the meantime, the market has gone negative on the resignation, um, you know, looking for some reason that he got out or whether he was kicked out. But, I mean, overall it's been, you know, it, it hasn't done much over the last few years, but it's still a very good company. David Shapiro, as always, bringing us up to date on the latest movements in the markets. Thanks, Dave. Good talking with you. Well, we were talking about MTN just a moment ago, and somebody who's uh, well, got some good news for MTN is Marius Hollenbach. He is with My Broadband, and you guys do a quarterly survey, Marius. This time around, MTN, well, I think they've been top for a while, so I can't say this time around. So it has been a, <laughs> it, it, it seems to almost be a, a permanent uh, fixture now at the top of the My Broadband survey. Just by way of background, though, you do this yes. four, four times a year. What exactly do you check on? Yes, um, as you rightly said, MTN has been has been on the top for a while. So some background on the research we do. Um, we collect data uh, from the from the mobile network operators um, through a few um, ways, and then we process all of the the data to come up with a with a best mobile network um, for the country. So. So firstly, we've got a, we've got an app that people can install on their smartphones. Using this app, people can run network tests on the smartphones that measures the download speed, upload speed, and latency of the mobile network operator they are using. What's a latency? Uh, latency is essentially the time it takes for a message to get from your phone to the endpoint where you um, pulling data from, and then um, and then back. So. So that is usually measured in milliseconds. So if you, if you, if you, for example, visit a simple web page, there'll be a slight delay where your computer or your, or your, um, smartphone will try to connect over the network to the, the, the web page you're trying to access. So it's essentially the delay on how long that message takes to get to the, um, to the, to the resource you are here looking for. Good. And then, obviously, the download speed and obvious uh, upload speed is the rate at which data is then transferred. Um, so, so users can install this app on their smartphone and test these three metrics um, to see for themselves what what uh, their mobile network operator is is giving them. Along with this, we we've got a specialized vehicle that we drive across the country, and this vehicle runs constant tests that also measure these three. Um, these three uh, indicators. So we do thousands of kilometers doing tests all along the way. We take all of this data, the user data and the, the, 
the tests we do ourselves and then process that into a score that we, we give each um, network operator. And this network score is a value that shows the relative performance of the network operators against each other with a maximum score of 10. And MTN came out very close to 10 and well clear yes. of Vodacom. Was that a surprise? Yes. Um, n- no, MTN has been doing very well. The, um, in, in, a previous, in, a, in our previous quarter, in quarter three of 2019, they came out with a network score of 10 because their latency was slightly um, faster than Reigns at the time, which means they, they scored a perfect. They came out on top in all three metrics, but this time around, Rain edged them slightly in, in, in latency. So that just dropped their network score just below 10, but still uh, excellent performance from MTN. They showed massive improvements on, on download speed. Um, it was a really big jump. So, so well done for them. Um, and this is obviously because of they, they've been investing so much in the network over this past few years and they continually invest and, and from, from what we can see is just a, a excellent performance. So MTN has been investing in the network or investing heavily or more heavily presumably mm. than mm. Vodacom and is now reaping or its users are reaping the rewards. Has it just translated exactly. into market share? Um, I, I, I can't give you an, 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 a direct answer on that, but, but having the best network certainly does bode well for, for MTN. And if, if users out there are looking to, to maybe switch networks and, or, or sign up to a new contract, this is definitely something they, they will be looking at because if, if you can afford it, you, you definitely want to be on the, on the best network to ensure you've got the, the best performance. But, but that also doesn't, doesn't mean that in the specific area you'll be using the, the network, you will always get the best performance. Even some of the, the smaller guys, um, Telcom and Celsi do, do beat out the, the bigger guys in, in very specific areas. So, so if you're going to be making a decision on, on which, which network operator to use, there are a bunch of, of things you have to take into account. But nationally, um, across the board, MTN does, uh, do, does outperform the other guys. Now, Vodacom is very competitive. Surely they would be doing something to try and at least close that gap. <laughs> yes, yes. They, they, they have been trying. Um, and it, it, it is a, a very um, big task to, to, to catch up. Um, and, and just on that note, Vodacom has, has himself been, been performing very well. The, the quality of the, the network that, that Vodacom has is, is excellent. Um, but catching up to MTN, they'll, they'll have to invest a lot and they'll have to almost out invest MTN for, for quite some time just to catch up to, to, to where MTN is at the moment. So it's a, it's a very difficult task, but, but I'm sure Vodacom, um, will be trying their best to, to, um, to get, to get on top. But Maurice, are you seeing it? Are you seeing Vodacom cranking up their investment to try and do that or are they happy with the status quo? Well, I, I, I don't think they're, they're happy with their, with their status quo. They, they, I'm sure they are trying. Um, and and from our from our results, all, all across across all the operators, we do see in specific sections and specific areas a big improvement. So so it, it is a challenge. Um, but but another another aspect that that all the operators are fighting is the is the lack of of spectrum. So as soon as as soon as they get the, the spectrum they need to roll out new technologies or to, to, to um, provide a better service to, to customers. That will be, that will be a massive um, 
improvement that that we'll see in the results. But uh, at this stage, it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a fight with a with what they have, and and um, I, I must say that the top two guys are, are performing really well. That's interesting. So towards the end of this year, or certainly the second half of 2020, we've been promised by Stella Abrams and Dabeni that the Minister of Communications that they will have Spectrum available, and we mm-hmm. might see different results there. But for what yeah. we have at the moment, you mentioned rain. I see they they come mm-hmm. in uh, at number three on the list. Mm-hmm. Is it? It's still quite a long way behind MTN and Vodacom though. Yes, yes. Uh, out out of the five, the five operators only only MTN and and Vodacom really have a national network. So so they're the only two guys that can can offer a service to essentially anyone in the country. Rain, Telkom, and Celsius. They've uh, their footprint just so much smaller. Um, so it's the rain when they when they started out did really well, um, and they, they've been they've been keeping a. a a good performance, but it, as, as soon as as soon as you start gaining more customers and you start have to serve them the, at the same at the same quality, it, it becomes a challenge. So, so it's going to be a a very long ride for for any of the smaller guys to to ever catch up to to MT and Vodacom in terms of um, network uh, size. So, so we've seen we've seen Telcom roaming uh, having a roaming agreement with Vodacom. So. Subscribers get that that advantage, um, and also Celsius. They've been they've been using MTN to some degree, um, but it's for for the smaller guys. It's a it's a challenge. They they'll they'll have to be smart in the the way they they approach their their network rollout and and their partnerships because realistically it's it's tough for them to to compete on a on a national network level. Now, Maurice, you are plugged into all of this. Most of us watch from the sidelines and read what we can to try and understand how, uh, who's telling the truth and what's really <laughs> marketing. But Rain, mm. Rain is talking uh, a good game on 5G, that mm. 5G is going to be its, its focus area, its sweet spot. Mm. Where is all of that? How, how much of that do we take seriously, given that they come uh, so poorly or so far behind both Vodacom and MTN yeah. in your uh, survey? So, so, so 5G, I, I think, is a, is a game changer. Um, the, it's important to, to just make a difference or to, to mention a difference between, between the, the, the data we collect. We, we currently focus on mobile networks. So RAIN has only launched their 5G as a, as, a fixed, as a fixed line alternative. So that means your router stays in your house. You can't move it around. And I, I've been I've been using their services, and I must say I'm I'm astonished the the, the speeds I get and, and and the quality of the network is just phenomenal at the, at this stage. So if if they can translate that into a mobile service, it's gonna it's gonna be huge for them, and 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 the same for the for the other guys, um, Vodacom and MTN. But it is it, it's a challenge as as we mentioned the the spectrum issue, um, and and the technology that that. The, the way 5G works is, is quite challenging in, in terms of, of the, the, the distance um, a, a tower can cover or the, the radius it can cover around it. So your, your expenditure on, on building a 5G network is so much more than, than building an a LTE network, for example. So it's, uh, 5G is, uh, I, I think, going to be a big, a big um, differentiator, but it's, I think we're still quite a while off before we before we buy smartphones in a, in a store that, that 
effectively run on a, on a full 5G network. It's just such a challenge to to build those networks and and to get the the spectrum from from government. So if we are looking at people who've got fiber in their homes, then it mm. sounds to me like the best call is going to be rain if they're in your area. I suppose that's another big thing because clearly they, they don't come <laughs> yes. to our country. Yes, yes. It, it it is a very good option and and that's exactly the 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 reason I've I've been using them for a bit. I've I've tried a few options and and it it is a it is a great service. And we'll we'll have to wait and see what the what the product the 5G product offering looks like in future because they they're the first guys offering it really and um it's it's on an uncapped basis compare or competing directly with the, with the fiber offerings we have available. But we will have to see if, if that's a if that's a long term um, solution or offering that that they can provide. If it is, it it would be absolutely fantastic. But these fiber networks and all the other fixed uh, fixed line um, uh, solutions are, are quite mature and and they, they've come a they've come a long way. So there's a lot of competition and and the the, the offerings are, are really um, fine tuned. So so we'll see how that works out for rain. Um, but it's, it's, it's a great solution for the moment. So just to close off with, what download and upload speeds are you getting with that 5G connection? So, uh, uh, um, okay. it, it, it does vary, but it, I, I never go uh, – the speeds I'm getting are never under 200 megabits per second, which is extremely fast. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I think I'm on the on the lower tier of of speeds. I've I've spoken to some people that get much higher speeds. But but just in, to to put the, the or jumping back to the mobile network um, performances, we've we on our normal tests where we use smartphones that support only LTE, we also see speeds well over 100 megabits per second um, on both Vodacom and MTN. So, so that already shows how, how competitive these networks are and what good service they provide. Obviously, not everyone in the street is going to get these speeds, but it is achievable and it is out there and just shows how, how hard these guys are working to, to give us a great service. Well, it's a warm welcome to Barbara Walsh. Good to uh, – happy new year to you, Barbara. I hope 2020 is a, a better year for you than 2019. Uh, and I'm sure you know what I mean by that, given all the uh, <laughs> the legislative issues that you had with Comair. Maybe just recap for us quickly. Metico is a company that, that you started with your partner, Danny. Um, you got into uh, a pretty unsavory relationship with Comair. How's – what's happened there? Okay, so I think uh, where we left off the last time, we were just in the process of starting arbitration proceedings, which are now underway. Um, we had the pre-arbitration meeting on the 14th of December, where the legal teams on both sides and our arbitrator uh, were present. So the, the whole proceedings are underway now. And yeah, this is something we're committed to for the long term, Alec. However long it takes, we'll, we're in for it. And the arbitration is about what? So the arbitration, if, if I recap on, on what happened, in August 2018, Comair acquired our company, Metico, to leadership development consultancy, and the intention was that Metico would form a, a key pillar in the aviation and general academy that, that Comair was, was busy developing. Very big vision for, for a world-class international academy and leadership was, was a big part of that. It was a very exciting vision. Um, we were working with, with 
Eric Fenter at the time, at the then CEO of Comair. And it was, it was such an honor to be a, a part of something like that. And we were very excited about the, the acquisition, about our, our role in it. Not very long after that, so we're looking at, at less than a year, there was a complete about turn along the way Eric had resigned. So he too had been experiencing, as we understand it, his own challenges. And, um, and he resigned and Kame did a, a complete about turn on the strategy for, for the academy and decided they no longer needed Metaco. But instead of, of sitting down and, and talking to us about the revised strategy, you know, we work in leadership. We understand that strategies change. They issued us with a, a notice of breach, a, a very sudden meeting, our first meeting ever actually with, with Len Osmond, as it turned out, before he was even CEO, which he accused us of being in breach of the, the sale agreement. And later on, we were also served with a notice of a put notice, which effectively meant that they were reversing the transaction and wanting their, their um, purchase fee plus interest back. We don't agree that we were in breach and we feel that a far better solution would have been to sit down and talk about this. We weren't given any opportunity to do so. And so we've had no option but to take the legal route. Um, and that's what we've been doing. We spent a lot of time on, on this and we've, we've been very careful and very thorough on our approach and we're ready. Who owns Metico now? Well, that's an interesting, interesting part of it. Metico is, was Kame. Kame decided they didn't want it anymore. At the moment, it's, it's kind of betwixt and between. Um, they took all their directors off the board, which just left us with the company to run. And we've had to do whatever's necessary to, to, um, support the company and, and to put it in a position where we can start to rebuild it. If we hadn't have done that, we would have been, um, neglectful of our director's duties so we've we've been we've been supporting the company we've been running it we've been building it again and um, who owns it well i think that's going to be a that, that's part of what will come out i suppose of the arbitration um yeah did you ever deal with rodney Sachs, one of the board members at Comi? no we didn't not directly the the only contact um to put it that to put it that way that we we had was when we emailed the whole board directly wanting to to sit down and discuss this and he obviously was one of the board members at the time um but not directly and we had no direct contact with him because the timing of all this is is interesting just go back into rodney Sachs for a moment david shapiro was telling us that he's a greenside boy he was uh, a very hard-assed litigator when he worked for worksman's for 20 years he then went to the united states where he's been super successful he's the basically the founder of monster uh, which is a 30 billion dollar u.s uh, market cap company but he remained on mm -hmm. the board of Comi until recently He's resigned. Mm. So has the uh, long-serving chairman, Piet van Hoeven, resigned. Now, this is the timing is, is, is really interesting because Metico's story hits the media. Uh, we certainly have spoken about this a bit, and other media outlets have also been, been addressing it. Lindsay Ralphs, the chief executive of Bidvest, starts getting a lot more involved. We're having resignations uh, off the board, long-standing members of the board at Kame. It looks like you've lit some kind of a firecracker within the Kame organization, or um, is it, are there other reasons perhaps that, that, that might be uh, causing these ructions? 
Well, I, th- I think the Russians, if, if I read the media correctly and, and understand uh, what has been written about it, are probably more to do with, with governance issues at Comair. Um, very long-standing board members. It wasn't only um, Sachs and, and Van Hoeven, but there was Martin Moritz as well. Um, yeah, he's also one of the long-standings. Pete Belkamut was another one. So all of the long-standing members of the board have gone, and that's something that Lindsay Roth said that he was going to do at the AGM. Is that directly result, uh, related to us? I doubt it. I think that, that there were probably um, concerns on Bidre's part and perhaps other shareholders as well before the AGM. I think potentially what we've done is, is just make those concerns more public. Have you engaged with any of those people whose names you've mentioned? No. Um, actually, if, if, if I just repeat something that Lindsay Ross was, was quoted as saying in, in one of the articles, and he said, we tried to engage with them, but we encountered a lot of resistance. So we exercised our rights and voted at the AGM. Well, we can say we had pretty much the same experience. We tried to engage with them, but we encountered a lot of resistance and actually got nowhere. So, so it's, it's, I don't know whether that's a pattern or not, but it certainly was our experience as well. Um, I, I just want to understand that better. You tried to engage with Comair. Is Lindsay Ralph saying he tried to engage with the directors? Is, is this the issue that you're talking about, or did they try and engage with you? The directors didn't try and engage with us. No, I think Lindsay Ralph is, is talking about trying to engage with the longstanding directors. All right. So you haven't met any of these people. You haven't had anything to do with them. Um, the only one that I've met personally of of the people who have resigned um, is Derek Bora, and very briefly one's Pete van Hoeven. I haven't met any of the others. Mm. So uh, Danny ha- Tuckwood, I met them at the AGM, but apart from that, no, we haven't had any any direct contact with them. You mentioned the AGM. What exactly was Danny hoping to achieve, and, and what were you asking them? Well, Danny attended the AGM as a as a shareholder, so I think it's quite important to draw the distinction that that that's something quite different to Metico. Um, what Metico had had experienced, or we what we'd experienced in in the the story with Metico was, I think, something that that was just symptomatic of governance exper- of governance generally, um, as it was was happening at Comair at the time, and. Yeah, that, that was just something we wanted to, to highlight and to raise. You know, we, as shareholders of Comair and, and we have a lot of faith in Comair. I mentioned earlier the vision for Comair was, was phenomenal. You know, we, we were really distraught at, at seeing where the, what was happening and where it was going and, and actually discovering what, what was really underneath the covers. Mm. And the questions that he was asking, when you say relating to governance, were they, was there anything specific you can share with us? Well, if, if we're going to talk about about that, um, yes, it, it was really around the, the tenure of the directors, whether they whether they could genuinely be seen as being um, independent directors when they'd been part of the, the organisation for so long, and uh, they'd both been in executive capaci- capacities, many of them, not all of them, and also in non-executive posi- uh, capacities. But can someone really remain independent? After forty odd years, so that that was was one of the the issues. Um, the second one was around the 
the joint CEOs and, and what their mandates were, who was responsible for what, because that was very great, seeing that every, both of them were responsible for everything. You know, we work in leadership. We know that that's not a recipe for success. So it was, you know, those, those were key points. And you still think <laughs> that you haven't had any influence on what's going on at the moment? Well, we, we, we probably have in terms of, of just raising the issues in a public forum. I don't know whether they would have been raised publicly or not. I know that in many companies that's not the case. They tend to keep the, those kind of issues um, quiet. But you know, I, I do know, though, that, that these were the issues were being expressed before. So I, I think we just surfaced them. Barbara, what happens next? You've had the pre-arbitration meeting. Uh, presumably it's arbitration from here. Well, it's arbitration from here. We've had we've had quite a long journey to get to to the point where we were ready to submit our, our claim to Comair. And we've done exactly what if we had been working with with a leadership team that was facing this kind of a, a crisis or any crisis, really. But just taking that step back and looking at so what are the resources we need? What do we need to be doing? How can we ensure that we are in the best possible um, place to be able to come out of this intact and and potentially, you know, able to to continue where we left off or even progress the business. So we we're a small company. We don't we don't have huge resources, and Kami is very aware of that. But what we do have is networks, and so we've tapped into our networks and been able to really to be able to get the best advice and and the best. We've consulted with with literally the best in the country and. We know that we're standing on a very strong ground now. And yeah, we, we were, by the time we issued the, the claim, we were absolutely ready to, to take them on. And it's been interesting to, to see Kami's response since. Mm. And what has that been? Well, initially, um, the, I think another interesting point to note is, is the appointment of our arbitrator, who's actually Robert Nugent, retired judge Robert Nugent. He chaired the SARS inquiry. Wow. So he's that's, going to be, heavy, yeah. Right? Yeah. It is. He'll be arbitrating this. And we're really glad about that because he has a reputation for being very fair, straight, direct and not taking any any nonsense. We've experienced, Kame did tell us um, a while back that if we were to go to arbitration, that they would try and drag things out. And and the, you know they they were very open. They, their attorneys are very open about telling us that this could take up to two years, and we've just run out of money. And um, and so we've been very careful to make sure that that's not going to happen. And we've I think been able to structure ourselves, um, quite, um, incredibly well actually. And and this will later on I think become an example for other small businesses how to do it. You don't necessarily need to have the biggest pockets. You just need to know where to look for the support. So, um, so with that, we've, we've been able to consult with, with people like Theo Boatek. He helped us a lot with, with preparing for the AGM. We've uh, had really good advice. Our, our advocate is Paul Farlam, senior counsel Paul Farlam. Paul's father, um, is Ian Farlam, who chaired the Marikana Commission, the biggest damages claim ever paid out. Um, in South Africa, the most successful damages claim. So we've we've um, consulted with the head of forensic accounting at Vits. We know that we're on a good footing. We know that we were not in breach. That there was actually an error in Comey's accounting. Um, and and so this is what we go into the arbitration with. We pretty we our facts are solid, 
and we're, we're very confident in our case. You know, on the one hand, you're seeing the board of directors at Comair that's being shaken up and long-standing members leaving. That surely would have an impact or an influence on the culture and the way it would address issues like yours. Have you seen any of this? We haven't seen any of it, Alec. Um, I would hope it will, and we certainly remain very open to, to talking to them. Um, whether they decide to or not is, is really going to be up to them. I don't know what the new board is going to decide about that. So we, we can, we're very open to talking to them, and if they still maintain their, their stance that they will, you know, they're, they're going the legal route, well, we'll go to arbitration. What we are going to do is ensure that it doesn't drag out, and we're in it for the long term, however long it takes. Um, but already we've seen attempts at them to drag it out that have been stopped. And so we're hoping that they'll, they'll actually just come on board now and deal with it. Barbara Walsh is the founder or co-founder of Metaco. Well, it's a welcome to Chris Yelland, uh, who is our go-to guy, anything to do with Eskom. And my goodness, it's been a week of, of drama at Eskom, Chris. Now, without getting into all the, the chaos that's happened there, just to start off with, the resignation of the chairman, um, Jabo Mabuza, was that expected from from where you sit? Well, he was coming under enormous pressure even before uh, the commitment made uh, and broken by the president, uh, apparently on the word of uh, the chairman um, and and uh, Eskom, uh, and and so I think uh, following that the, the president must have been seriously and severely embarrassed. Uh, and I, I think uh, Jabu Mabuza found his position untenable. And he also probably was thinking, you know, he really doesn't need this in his life at this stage of his life. Uh, and, and, and he resigned. It was really interesting to read between the lines of, 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 his, of his letter. Uh, and he didn't, it was not quite an apology from what I could see. Uh, he basically said that that he had explained the risks to the president, uh, and and I think he was perhaps a little surprised that the president then went on to make a promise, in line in light of the fact that he had in, in fact explained the risks of load shedding uh, going forward over this period, even though the probability may be lower than normal, there are serious risks, and there certainly were serious risks as reality showed. Mm. And then the pressure on his boss, uh, Pravin Gordon, to resign as well. Do you think there's, mm. there's much in that? Well, it seems to be building up very intensely, even within uh, the uh, upper echelons of the ANC. Um, and uh, so I think it, it, the pressure is a reality. Uh, whether or not the president will bow to that pressure remains to be seen. I, I must say it would be dis- extremely disturbing if the uh, uh, if Minister Pravin Gordon uh, had to be uh, had to resign, or that Eskom should be removed from his uh, control and put under the Department of Mineral Energy and Resources under Gwedi Matasha. Uh, the disruption to the to the Eskom uh, would be very severe, I believe. Uh, especially, you know, it's coming almost, uh, you know, at the same time as the departure of the uh, previous chairman, Mr. Mabuza, as well as the arrival of the new uh, CEO, 
I think it would be, it would achieve absolutely nothing in my mind and would have a huge downside risk. So I don't see any upside benefit at all. I hope it doesn't happen, uh, but uh, never a dull day in politics. Mm, yeah, so it's all politics, all of that. I, I believe it's very politically driven. Uh, there's a kind of a power struggle underway um, for the control of Eskom. Uh, by forces, some forces who, who, who oppose to Pravin Gordon. Uh, some people would say that's because he is, uh, cleaning up the act. Uh, and uh, a lot of people are feeling under pressure. A lot of, uh, vested commercial interests in the coal and nuclear sector, uh, would be pushing against, uh, Pravin Gordon and, uh, and supporting, uh, Gwede Mentasha. Um, it, it's really a very poisonous uh, environment right now. How did they get it wrong, though? Because if you considering the new administration is trying to position itself as, as the clean administration, cleaning up the corruption of the past, they don't really have much room to make mistakes like the mistake that was made where there was a promise that load shedding wouldn't start until Monday the 13th. It seems like a manufactured crisis because I think all of South Africa uh, knows that load shedding is here and is going to continue for a while. And I doubt that too many people would have planned their lives on load shedding not start or st- not mm-hmm. beginning a few days early. But, but how could they get something like that wrong? Look, you know, I don't really think, uh, you, you know, the, the issue really right now uh, is to do with, um, uh, you know, governance or uh, uh, with things like maintenance. I think the situation has got has gone well beyond that. And uh, we really are in a situation now where uh, look, there has been a measure of a cleanup and I'm sure there's a lot more still to be done. Um and, and that's going to take time anyway, whoever is in control, whoever. Uh, but uh, then we have this whole issue of maintenance. Now, I, I must say, I think the issues have moved beyond maintenance. It's beyond playing games of Tetris and shuffling generators, uh, scheduling and rescheduling them for maintenance uh, to try and maximize the maintenance. These are old plants. They are decrepit. They are damaged. They have been uh, abused by overloading, by skipping and deferral of maintenance and by skipping of their midlife uh, refurbishment, which is a, is a very deep level uh, maintenance that is done and refurbishment done at midlife. These have been skipped. So this old plant uh, that is beyond midlife is really in bad shape and it's no longer about maintenance. There isn't enough space to do the maintenance anymore uh, because when they do, if they had to do the kind of maintenance that is needed, they will go into load shedding. And there's even talk that that might be the right strategy to have a continuous period of load shedding. At least people can plan their lives and uh, businesses around that. Uh, but the bottom line is we need new generation capacity and we need it fast. There's not only a capacity shortage, there's also an energy shortage. We need more energy. And the solutions really are to procure new least cost energy, which comes from wind and solar PV, backed up by new least cost generation capacity, flexible generation capacity, which comes in the form of uh, gas to power plants and battery energy storage. And that's, if you look at the integrated resource plan for electricity, that's where all the new capacity is coming from. Not from nuclear, not from new coal. 
And I, I believe that's quite right. That is the right uh, thing, uh, the right what is in the IRP. The problem at the moment is we have a Minister of Energy who seems to be going back on his very own IRP and stalling the procurement of what is in the IRP for the next 10 years. And we're left in this really crisis mode, and something has to be done fast. And the shortest-term options facing South Africa right now are to harness the energy of the private sector, the human energy and the natural energy, uh, you know, wind and solar uh, and gas and battery energy storage uh, that will come from the customers of electricity at no cost to government. And this can be delivered quickly within the next six months to two years if we can only unlock the blockages that are preventing government from opening up this market. It sounds so rational. But there, there is, you, you mentioned the blockages. What's the argument for these blockages? The, 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 the arguments are, in my view, driven by political ideology and contestation for resources uh, and vested interests that are vying uh, to protect their territory. Just to give you an example, the coal mining industry has been one of the big success stories of black economic empowerment in South Africa. Uh, Many uh, small, medium, and large uh, emerging coal miners have gone into this field and indebted themselves in so doing. Uh, In other words, they've borrowed money, they've got into this industry, and they deeply committed uh, they saw this as the future, but they haven't realized that, in fact, what they were buying were the liabilities of the coal majors who are all pulling out because they've got a little bit more vision. And they're leaving the emerging miners with these toxic assets. And uh, now all of a sudden there's talk about an energy transition and moving away from coal. And you can imagine these people who've Basically, mortgage their lives, uh, you know, to 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 uh, to buy these assets and to get involved in coal mining, are going to hang on to these things for dear life because uh, their whole financial future depends on it, and they will be ruined uh, if there was an energy transition, as there has to be. So uh, these huge vested interests are at play. There are also nuclear vested interests at play. Really, are still, unfortunately, still trying to make a nuclear comeback. Uh, and um, and these forces are at play politically uh, within organizations like Nexa, the Nuclear Energy Corporation, and within ESCOM, and within uh, the coal mining industry itself. Now, you've written a, a, a very thoughtful piece that we are publishing on BizNews about all of this, about the way ahead. What do you think the chances are that the right people are going to be listening? Well, I think people listen sometimes, but they don't hear. <laughs> uh, and it's to do with this uh, uh, political, ideological uh, resistance uh, to solutions that come as they have to come, because there are no other options, but they have to come from the private sector and from the market and from customers. Yeah, I, I think, as, as I say, the, uh, the political terrain and the ideology is highly contested at the moment. And looking at the history of the ruling party, I am not sure yet whether there is sufficient consensus 
in the political structures of the ANC, and here I'm talking really the cabinet level, the top six, the NEC, and the party itself and its alliance partners, Kusatu and the South African Communist Party, who ideologically come from a different world view. And I'm not sure that there is sufficient prevailing consensus to move forward. And that is why we have seen this whole restructuring process of the electricity supply industry, which every knowledgeable uh, energy sector analyst and uh, knows has got to happen, but it is not happening. And I believe it's because there is not sufficient consensus within the power structures of South Africa to move forward on this with confidence. Fascinating insights there from Chris Yelland, uh, who is uh, very close to what's been going on in that side. In fact, he's made a career out of understanding the whole electricity department. This special podcast is brought to you by Bright Light Solar, whose chief executive, Kevin James, is with us. Kevin, um, when we've been having these conversations over the past few weeks, the reaction has been quite significant from the business community. Literally hundreds of people are interested in what's uh, the, the option that you have to offer, and we'll get into that in a moment. But have you been getting back to these people? Have you been telling them exactly what it is that, that uh, or, or unpacking the incredible returns that, that are available uh, through the whole J12 process? Hi, Alec. Uh, yes, we have been getting back to everybody that has expressed interest, and we are overwhelmed by the extent of the interest shown. So, so thank you to you and, and your community. Uh, the, the, the delay that we've had is the prospectus has not yet been finally approved uh, for issue by the CIPC. We have had an indication today that this is likely to be on Wednesday this week. So hopefully on the 15th of January, uh, the prospectus will now go live and we will then send a copy of that prospectus or a link to it. Uh, to everybody that has contacted us uh, that has expressed interest. So at least we'll now be able to provide them with the legal document setting out details of our offering of shares. Now, I've seen that prospectus. It's nearly 160 pages. It's a lot to sure. read through. Uh, what should the prospective investors be looking for? I think the most important parts of it is just an understanding of the business. But um, the one that I would recommend that people really focus on are the risk factors. Now, what we've tried to do is, is be as comprehensive as possible to set out all potential risks uh, that an investor or, or that the company could face. And I think as with any investment, you need to understand what can go wrong. And I think that's quite important and then certainly anyone that has questions relating to anything, whether it be the risk factors or anything else contained in that prospectus, is then welcome to contact uh, me and uh, I will happily meet with people and, and address any issues that they may have. Why is a prospectus needed? Because this is an offer to the public. So Brightlight Solar VCC is a public company and uh, in terms of the company make an offer of shares to the public, you need a formal uh, prospectus, which is, uh, and the requirements of a prospectus are set out in the Companies Act. And as a result, this public offer is made in accordance with the regulations of the Companies Act. And that, hence the CIPC, uh, which presumably reads through it and makes sure that you guys aren't crooks. 
Indeed, and they've actually been very thorough. Um, they've asked some some good questions, and um, they obviously were now closed for the Christmas period. They have just reopened, and we are hoping, as I say, to to have this approved for publication on Wednesday. Kevin, both of us have been in the financial markets for a long time, and I remember during the uh, the booms in the stock market, one would always have a look at who the advisors are because that would give you a good insight into how credible the offer to the pub, uh, the, or I suppose we could call it the, the pre-listing offer or the IPOs to uh, public companies listed on the stock exchange, would give you a very good insight. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Who are your advisors? Who are the people that you have on your masthead? So we have um, been using Worksman's as our attorneys from the very uh, beginning uh, of, of setting up Bright Light. Um, we've got a very strong relationship with them. And as you say, the amount of scrutiny that we get from our advisors is absolutely key. Uh, so Worksman's are our legal advisors and Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer are our tax advisors and uh, equally uh, they have been incredibly thorough in in delving into uh, the tax issues related uh, to bright lights. And because it is a Section 12J company, it is really important that we have tax advisors because it is a bit of a minefield. If uh, you know, if you do something wrong, uh, the implications for investors could potentially be quite significant. So by having those big names, uh, CDH and Worksman's, and by the way, who are your auditors? Um, um, it is BDO. So it was, it was previously Grant Thornton, and, and Grant Thornton then were taken over by BDO um, South Africa. All right. So having, having those big names um, on your prospectus, do they check it to make sure that everything you say is, is honest and correct and truthful? Is, is that why they're there? Uh, so they're there to review everything that we say. So from, from a BDO point of view, they have reviewed all of our forecasts in fairly, well, in, in great detail, uh, and they have signed off on that. Um, in terms of all the legal uh, angles that are required, uh, worksmen's have obviously um, ticked that box. And, um, and, and in fact, whilst we have... Uh, prepared the prospectus, everything is uh, reviewed in detail by Worksman's on that. And then, yes, in, in terms of all the tax issues, that's all then been approved by Cliff Decker. And, and CDH have also issued their own uh, report, which, is, which forms part of the prospectus. All right. So there's everything that one as a potential investor would possibly want to know from. Uh, how much money are you going to be raising through this prospectus? So it, it is an open-ended um, uh, potential capital raise. What we have stated in the prospectus is that we're looking to raise 100 million rand. If there is demand in excess of the 100 million rand, the directors have the ability to extend it. Uh, in February 2019, we raised just shy of 94 million rand. And, uh, you know, we don't really know what the potential demand is going to be. One of the factors that could curtail that potential demand uh, are the new caps that came in that we discussed previously, where a, an individual or a trust is now limited in their, their tax deductibility to a maximum of two and a half million rand per taxpayer per year. 
and companies are now limited to claim a maximum of 5 million rand. Now, we previously had um, investors that were significantly higher than that. So we, we just don't know how much we are going to raise. Mm. Is there a minimum? In other words, if, if, if it's unsuccessful, is there a cap there? And, and yes. What would the, happen? The minimum is 10 million rand. And then what would happen then if you didn't raise 10 million rand? Then uh, the C offer, which is, is the offer, it's the third offer that we're now raising. So the C tranche would then be cancelled and any monies that had been um, submitted would then be returned back to investors. All right. So the risk here is all to do with the financial returns. It's in the prospectus. Read the prospectus. It'll be available, uh, you say, on Wednesday, on the, on the 18th. So- Subject to the CRPC giving us the approval, we should be live uh, and good to go on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And when will it close? When does the offer, the the prospectus close? Um, So we are closing on the uh, 25th of February. Uh, That that gives us then three days to be able to send IT3B returns back to all investors so that by the 28th of February, every investor has already received their IT3B, and that then allows them to claim the Section 12J allowance or or deduction um, in their uh, tax return, their their, their e-filing submission, which they would be making on the 28th of February. So it is a very quick turnaround, and the benefit that an investor will receive is almost immediate if they are a provisional taxpayer. And just in a nutshell, explain how that benefit works. So Section 12J says that an investor that uh, invests into an approved Section 12J uh, share scheme is allowed to deduct the full cost of that investment against their taxable income in the year in which they invest. So let's say you you have an investor that earns, say, 5 million rand in taxable income. He chooses to invest, say, a million rand in a venture capital scheme, venture capital company, Section 12J company, they all used interchangeably. Uh, in his tax return, his e-filing, it asks the question, have you invested in a venture capital company? It then opens a drop-down box. You say, yes, I've invested a million rand. And then the e-filing uh, calculator says gross taxable income, 5 million rand. You've invested a million rand in a, in a 12J investment, and therefore your taxable income is immediately reduced to 4 million rand. So you don't even land up paying the tax and then claiming it back. It's immediately deducted off the tax that you are paying on the 28th of February. Kevin, surely this is quite a nice opportunity for companies who might have a a provisional, and individuals who might have a provisional tax problem. Uh, Take, for instance, your company's done better or your income has been better than what you thought it would have been at the halfway stage when you had to pay provisional tax. Is, is that – am I on the wrong, wrong path here? So it is certainly a tax planning opportunity. The one thing I would like to stress, however, is that there is a required minimum holding period of five years. So it's not a short-term tax planning opportunity. Uh, investors need to think long-term. The money is going to be locked up for at least 60 months. 
if they redeem for any reason within that 60-month period, there is a full recoupment of their initial Section 12J allowance that they received. So, yes, it is absolutely a tax planning um, uh, tool, but people need to think long-term. And what are the returns? That, that uh, Just recap on those. So the returns that we are offering our investors, and those returns are made up of three different factors. The first one is the upfront Section 12J allowance. The second one are dividend returns, and we pay dividends every six months from year one. And then we are expecting the majority of investors to exit in month 61 when that five-year period, that initial lockup is then um, made, uh, it then falls away. The effect of those returns on uh, an investor in bright light is that they should receive an effect of 21% after tax return over that five-year period. And where does the money get invested? It, I guess there's a, there's a clue because you call bright light solar. <laughs> <laughs> so we are investing in underlying companies. They are, they are referred to as qualifying companies in the Income Tax Act. And those qualifying companies are the ones that then install fully paid solar installations uh, into uh, our target market is primarily the gated estate market, so homeowners associations and sectional title buildings, although we do do commercial and industrial buildings as well. And what we then do is we pay for the full upfront capital cost of that installation, and we then sell the electricity uh, that is generated uh, to those uh, customers over the period, they then pay for the electricity consumed on a monthly basis. We use that electricity revenue uh, that we then receive to pay back to our investors in the form of dividends. Uh, and the, the electricity cost that we are selling, the, the, the price per kilowatt hour that we are selling to these customers is normally at a reasonably substantial discount to what they are currently paying to their current utilities. It, it sounds like uh, the kind of scheme that you'd like to see really exploding in South Africa, given the issues that the country has with power, are you um, are you being supported by the authorities? So we are in an area called small-scale embedded generation. Um, apologies for the technical nature of that, but. Uh, what that means is that it is typical rooftop type installation. There are very few regulations um, that are, are problematic to us um, because all of our installations uh, from a residential point of view are small scale, as the name implies. Uh, and all we have to do with that is we then register with the local authority. I think that's quite an important factor just to allow the local utilities to be able to manage their load and be aware of the size of the solar installations. Um, but from a regulatory point of view, we don't uh, encounter substantial regulatory impediments. So you said right in the outset that you're looking to raise $100 million, but it's open-ended. So how big is the demand for the capital in this field? So, Alec, the pipeline that we have at the moment, and when we refer to a pipeline, these are proposals that we um, have given to investors and uh, to, to, to customers. 
Um, and we, in uh, November last year, crossed the 1 billion rand mark from a pipeline point of view. Now, I want to stress, not all of that billion rand is going to result in uh, installations, but that pipeline is constantly growing, and we would certainly expect a reasonable portion of that billion rand to materialize into closed deals. So from a deal flow point of view, uh, we are seeing the potential opportunity in multi-billions in the next few years because there is just such a, a an incredible need, as we all aware of the you know the, the kind of load shedding and, and electricity restrictions that we all exposed to. So the kinds of opportunities that we see in this market are, I won't say uncapped, but certainly very substantial. Kevin James is the Chief Executive of Bright Light Solar, and this special report was brought to you by Bright Light Solar. And that ends the Rational Radio Show for this week. We'll be back again, same time, same place, next week. That's uh, noon on a Monday. Join us then. Until then, from Alec Hogg, cheerio.